For the rest of you, I'd have you take your copies of the Holy Scriptures and open up to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1. On the shelf in my son's room, he has a Lego classic Mustang. He built it himself. It's really fancy. It looks just like a Mustang. If you were to look at it, you would say, that is a Ford Mustang. You can open up the hood and see an engine. It even has an electrical system that turns the lights on. It's Legos. Those aren't the Legos that you and I grew up with. You and I got a bucket of Legos and a book about like that. And when we made, you know, a Ford Mustang, it was a bunch of little square Legos on like four wheels. And we're like, there's our Mustang. This thing looks like a Mustang. And you look at it in all of its ways and all of its dimensions. It's just like the real thing. It points to a greater reality. Except it's not that thing. It's a pattern of that thing. It's a blueprint, as you, if, if you would, of showing us what it is that a real Mustang might look like. In the Bible, those kinds of patterns are called types. They are patterns that show us in their details a greater reality, something that we might refer to as an antitype, that which fulfills a type. It's the greater, it's greater than the type. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5 tells us how we are to interpret Genesis 1, 2, and 3. How are we to understand this narrative about Adam and of his commission and of his fall in light of all of Scripture, the Apostle Paul tells us that he was a type of the one to come. Such that if you and I want to understand the gospel... There are all kinds of places that we could go. There's low-hanging fruit places that are some of our favorite places to go. John 3.16. That God has sent His only begotten Son in the world, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Amen! Lots of places that we could go. But I wonder if you've ever thought to go to Genesis 1 through 3 to understand the gospel to understand what it is that Christ came to do. Now, what we're going to see in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, in a covenant that God has made with Adam, is not only the paradigm for sin and death spreading to all men, but becomes the pattern, the type, the little Mustang to the big Mustang of Christ's redemption, of the great saving work that He would accomplish. It's what theologians across the centuries, referred to as a covenant of works. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. Last week, we considered a covenant of redemption. It was an intra-Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, agreeing together to create and then to save, for God's glory, a people for Christ's possession. That's what we looked at last week. Now we see Adam created... We see him existing in a covenant relationship with God. And in the context of that covenant, we see all of mankind's destiny. And so I want to consider Genesis 1, 2, and 3 with you this morning, or afternoon rather. We've got quite a bit of text to go through. For those who are able, I would have you stand for the reading of God's holy word, but if at any time you need to sit down, feel free to do so. We're going to begin in Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, The Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. It was then that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of, the, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold. And the golden land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Skipping forward, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return.
So the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You can be seated. We're going to consider three things in this vast, expansive text that we just looked at. We're going to consider, first of all, in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam's created condition. Adam's created condition. And then we're going to see in Genesis 2, we're going to deep dive into it, a second thing. We're going to see Adam's covenantal condition. Adam's covenantal condition. And then finally, in Genesis 3, we're going to see a third thing, and that is Adam's cursed condition. We're going to consider Adam's created condition, his covenantal condition, and his cursed condition. Turn with me to Genesis 1. Let's just scan through some of it. We're going to move really quickly because we've got a lot of text to cover. In Genesis 1 and 2, what we see is God creating a vast cosmic temple for His dwelling presence. Later on in the Old Testament, Israel's temple is compared to God's creation, Psalm 78. He built His sanctuary like the heights, like the earth that He established forever. In other words, Israel's temple was a small cosmos, and God's cosmos was a large temple. All of creation was oriented toward God and was reminded to worship Him. Well, this orientation is emphasized, we see there at the beginning of chapter 2, by the Sabbath day at the beginning of chapter 2. When God finished His work, He rested. Now, He didn't rest as if He needed a nap. He's not like you and I. He's not like many of you who are going to go home from here and eat a lot of food and then try to watch the end of the Super Bowl through little squinty eyes, barely making it. doesn't need that kind of rest. No, He neither sleeps nor slumbers. Our God never grows weary. And so, God's resting on the seventh day is not ultimately about God needing a nap. It is about God's enthronement over His completed creation as King. A few years ago, I built a dining table to put into our dining room, but it has carpet on it, so we never really use it as a dining room. We use it as our homeschool table because who would ever put carpet in a dining room? Anyways, so I built a dining room table out of pine. Don't suggest it. Use a harder wood, but I used it out of pine. I made it over the course of several weeks. I designed it, YouTube, and then I built it. I borrowed lots of Ryan Adams tools. Put it all together. And then, to use the language of Genesis 1 and 2, in six days, <laughs> one six days, but in six days, I created the table. But then on the seventh day, I rested. And I rested not because I needed a nap. I rested when I moved it into my house and I dined on it. I used it for the purpose for which I made it. God's resting in the Sabbath at the beginning of chapter 2 occurs when he executes his sovereign rule over his finished creation. That his creation is now completed and it is fit for the purpose for which he made it. That is to be a dwelling place of his own glory with his people under his word. So God's original creation was a kind of cosmic temple, a garden sanctuary. The whole universe was designed and built to house the glory of God and be filled with worshipers who would enter into God's rest so that they might glorify and enjoy Him forever. Well, understanding Eden as God's temple sanctuary helps us to better understand both Adam's work and the covenant of works as well as Christ's work in the covenant of grace. But also, when we look back at Genesis 1, I want you to see something else. Just scan through verses 3 through 13. You're going to notice that God created three realms. We've got the heavens and the earth, or the cosmos. We've got the waters above and below. And then we've got the dry land, days 1, 2, and 3. And then, over the course of the next three days, and you can scan those in verses 14 through 31, God creates particular rulers for each realm. On the fourth day, 
He creates lights to govern the heavens that he created on the first day. Specifically, two great lights to govern. The sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. And then we see on the fifth day that the waters above and below are going to be ruled by birds and sea creatures. And then on the sixth day, the beasts have dominion over the land. But then we see something absolutely remarkable in verse 28. God said to them that they were designed to rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In other words, this man and this woman were created to rule the rulers in no less than two of the three realms. God rules over the entire cosmos. Humanity was created to rule over all the earth and all of its inhabitants under God. Well, this gives us a clue into what verses 26 and 27 mean when they say that mankind was created in God's image. It means that humanity was created by God to mediate His glorious character on earth, to be a go-between, revealing and reflecting God's glorious character on earth in, as we're about to see, a threefold office of priest, prophet, and king. This is going to become clear in Genesis 2, and it's there that we witness close up a recounting of God creating Adam. And what we're going to see is that Adam was created not only to be a mediator of God's glory, but as mediator, he holds a threefold office of priest, of prophet, and of king. Follow along with me, chapter 2, beginning in verse Nine. In verses 5 through 9, you can scan through that. God created Adam from the dust of the ground, and he animated him physically and spiritually by breathing into him the breath of life. Then in verses 10 through 14, you see that there, verses 10 through 14? It shows us the context for Adam's creation. Eden was God's mountain. It was the place of his dwelling. That's why we see rivers flowing down from it, watering that which is at the base of the mountain. That's why the prophet Ezekiel later on would recall Eden as, quote, the garden of God, the holy mount of God. But then notice in verse 15 that God places Adam in his mountaintop garden sanctuary. And what did he place him there for in verse 15? He placed him there, in verse 15, to work it and to keep it. The Hebrew words translated in your Bible to work or to keep or something like that, whatever those verbs are translated in your Bible, if you have the ESV, it says to work it and to keep it. The Hebrew words translated to work and to keep are coupled together elsewhere in the Old Testament, and they refer to priestly ministry. Numbers chapter 3, speaking of the priests, they shall guard, same word as keep, They shall guard all the furnishing of the tent of meeting, and they shall keep guard, same word as keep, and they shall keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister, work in the tabernacle. They shall guard and minister, same two Hebrew verbs that we find here in verse 15, for to work and to keep. God's appointed priests were responsible for distinguishing holy from unholy and clean from unclean. To this end, they were responsible for applying God's word to God's created order in order to discern what violates God's law and what doesn't. In other words, all faithful priestly ministry works and keeps. It guards and ministers in God's temple sanctuary. According to Genesis 2 and verse 9, the knowledge of good and evil. So Adam is created to be God's priest in God's temple sanctuary. But I want you to notice something else in verses 16 and 17. He wasn't just created to be God's priest. He was also created to be God's prophet. See that there. The Lord gave the man commands, gave him his word, Adam was to be one who meditated on and spoke God's word just as it was given to him. 
A prophet in the Old Testament was an individual called by God to hear his voice and to speak his words to God's people. Adam and his wife were to do the same. I want you to remember in Genesis 1 how the man and the woman were commanded to be fruitful and to multiply. In other words, they were to fill the earth with God-glorifying offspring by bearing children. And those offspring would be God-glorifying offspring because Adam and Eve would do what? Instruct them in God's law. Adam's prophetic calling compels him to meditate on God's law, and then to teach it to his wife, who was created later. And his wife would then be his prophetic helper, and together, as their family grows, their prophetic role would increase. They are to teach God's word, and they are to rebuke whatever contradicts it, to make sure no threat to God's word goes unconfronted. That's what we like to call foreshadowing. Nothing that opposes God's word can go unconfronted. They have been given a prophetic ministry to speak God's word as God gave it in order to maintain the purity of God's temple sanctuary. So Adam is created by God, placed in God's garden sanctuary to be God's priest and to be God's prophet. But then finally, in verses 18 and 19, we see that Adam was also created to be a king. We see in verse 18 that God purposed to give Adam a helper, a queen, so to speak. We see that play out in the very end of Genesis 2. She is going to help Adam fill the earth and subdue it according to God's commission, the commission that he gave them all the way back in Genesis 1. That's what we saw there. But then notice in verse 19 that we see Adam's kingly authority revealed as he gives names to the various aspects, the various animals. And so just in the same way that God named the very aspects, various aspects of the cosmos, so here in verse 19, Adam executes a similar kind of dominion by naming the animals. And as king, as one who exercised dominion, Under God, in God's place, Adam's goal is no less than twofold. He has a twofold purpose as king. Number one, he was to bring creation to its appointed goal. Adam and his wife were to be fruitful and they were to fill the earth. And they were to fill the earth with holy and God-honoring seed. He was to work as God worked. And he was to build a kingdom and then enter into God's rest when he finished that work. But secondly, not only was he to bring creation to its appointed goal, but secondly, Adam's Edenic rule, his rule in Eden, would determine his cosmic rule, whether or not he would rule over all of the cosmos as God's vice-regent. Notice here that Adam's obedience is first localized in Eden. Only according to God's stated commission would that spread then to the whole earth. And so the question becomes then, in light of this great purpose of Adam's Edenic rule spreading by his being fruitful and multiplying to the rest of the world, God's glory filling the earth, would God's glory fill the earth after all? Would Adam and his wife guard the purity of God's sanctuary according to God's word? Would Adam rule in righteousness and would he defend Eden from all of God's enemies, foreign or domestic? We'll consider all these things in just a moment, but first, I just want to consider a handful of implications from Adam's created condition. First, all people everywhere are made in God's image. All people everywhere are made in God's image. It doesn't matter about a person's age or ethnicity or social standing or even on their own ability to sustain their own life as with unborn children or elderly needing assistance. All persons are made in the image of God and as such possess equal dignity and worth. 
regardless of what they may or may not produce for society, they have dignity and worth because they are made in God's image, not because they're made in the image of the most productive in our society or the most beautiful in our society or the most worthy in our societies determined by other men. They are worthy because they're made in God's image. The Apostle James says that a person's dignity is so wrapped up in bearing God's image that to curse another person is tantamount to cursing God himself. This is also why partiality is a sin. All partiality assumes on some level greater worth for some and lesser worth for others. The Bible says that God shows no partiality and neither can his people. All people are made in God's image. But secondly, every image bearer was created to rule. Every image bearer was created to rule. And we're going to see in a moment how sin and death spread to all men. And that how due to sin, God's image was ultimately disfigured, even if it wasn't destroyed. And so you might come into my neighborhood, I can look out of my window, and I can see my neighbors actively subduing and caring for their own environment, some better than others. Many of us bear children, and we fill the earth, we form societies, and we appoint rulers. But because of sin, this image-bearing authority has been corrupted, hasn't it? In our homes, under sinful parents... In civil society under corrupt rulers, even in churches under selfish and abusive pastors. King David, in his final public words, said, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like an early morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Oh, no, if you are a modern person in here, and you are, you need to resist your instinct to think that authority is inherently bad. Authority granted by God, carried out in a godly way, leads to fruitfulness and flourishing in our homes, in our cities, and elsewhere. But that's not our experience, is it? Our rulers look more like King Saul than King David who wrote those words taking for himself rather than serving others. Scandal after scandal, one broken promise after another, leaves us cynical and jaded, whether toward politicians or whether toward fathers and mothers or others, and rightly so. David's words are so bright and refreshing to us because it speaks about the image of God in Christ. That's who David's ultimately talking about of the one who rules justly over men in the fear of God. It gives us a glimpse of what our hearts really long for, of Adam's dominion restored in Christ as he now rules those for whom he willingly laid down his life. And it shows us what we're meant to be, of what we will be once again in Christ. The offspring of the last Adam, ruling, worshiping, and embodying God's law, living in a kingly, a priestly, and a prophetic way with Christ forever. Well, we've just considered man's created condition, but now I want to consider, secondly, man's covenantal condition. Even though the word covenant is not found in Genesis 1 through 3, all the necessary components of a covenant are present. Now, there are going to be some who would say, well, the Bible's always really concerned whenever it talks about a covenant because it uses the language of covenant, and that is a good point. But there's also all kinds of important things that the Bible explicitly talks about elsewhere that are implied or inferred in other parts of the Bible, including covenants. So if we were to use for an example, the Bible in Genesis 2 never uses the word family. And yet Jesus refers to the family, and the Apostle Paul refers to the family from Genesis 2. Are we to say that Jesus and the Apostle Paul, hey, can't talk about the family in Genesis 2. Genesis 2 never says family. You got to go to another passage. In Genesis 3, we talk about the fall, but Genesis 3 never uses the word fall. 
And yet we use it as a theological paradigm for what happens in Genesis 3 because it accurately depicts the effects of sin on all of humanity and on creation. In the same way, what we see in Genesis 2 is a covenant, not because the word is used, but because of all the necessary components of a covenant are present. Some theologians refer to the covenant in Genesis 2 as a covenant of creation, and that's helpful. Reformed theologians, I think with a bit more precision, refer to God's covenant with Adam as a covenant of works. That is, it is a conditional covenant. Do this and live. And under the conditions of this covenant of works, we need to think about five things. First, God is going to place Adam in Eden. I'm going to repeat all this. Second, he is going to appoint Adam as his federal head. Third, he's going to obligate Adam to certain roles and responsibilities. Fourth, he's going to make promises and threats to Adam. Fifth and finally, he will test Adam's obedience. God will place Adam. He will appoint Adam. He will obligate Adam. He will make promises and threats to Adam. And he will test Adam. Place, appoint, obligate, make promises and threats, and test. That's three times. I hope you got it because I'm moving on. First, let's consider how God placed Adam. As you've already observed, beginning in Genesis 2, 8, and 9, God planted a garden in the middle of his completed cosmos. And in verse 15, he placed Adam there. We already noted that Eden was God's temple sanctuary. It was the place where God would dwell with his people. Well, by placing Adam in the Garden of Eden to keep it and to work it as his priest, God granted to Adam a realm to rule. Adam was a king over Eden. And God's kingdom would be established on earth as it is in heaven through Adam. And so for better or worse, as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. Which leads us to our next point. God hasn't only placed Adam, but God has appointed Adam. All divine covenants are made with a federal head. That is, a single person who represents everybody else in that covenant. Abraham is a covenant head. David is a covenant head. Above all, the Lord Jesus Christ is the covenant head of the new covenant. One who represents all. One in the place of many. Well, Adam was commissioned by God to fill the earth with all of his offspring. And according to the covenant of works, Adam was appointed by God as federal head of everyone who had come from him, and that's everybody. That's why the Apostle Paul in Romans 5 makes the connection between, quote, the one man, Adam, and, quote, all men, mankind. Specifically, specifically of how the one trespass of the one man led to the condemnation of all men. In the same way, 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul makes the point that in Adam, all die. One man in the place of all men. That when Adam jumped off sides, this is my gratuitous Super Bowl illustration for today. When Adam jumped off sides, the entire team was penalized. As the king goes, so goes the kingdom. And so God placed Adam in his garden sanctuary and appointed him as head over all of humanity. And by virtue of this appointment, God then obligated Adam. But obligated him to what? As God's appointed representative, God appointed or obligated Adam to fulfill, as we've already noted, certain roles and responsibilities as God's prophet, as God's priest, and as God's king. He is to work and to keep God's sanctuary, and he is to rule God's creation under God's word. But what happens if Adam fails or if he fulfills his obligations? Well, that leads to the fourth thing. God promised and threatened Adam. In the middle of the garden, see that there in verse 9, there were two trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then down in verse 16, God tells Adam that he can eat of any tree 
with one exception. That is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Only one tree was prohibited, which means the other tree, the tree of life, was not prohibited. Adam could eat freely from the tree of life. But attached to the one tree is the promise of eternal life. That's the tree of life. But attached to the other is the threat of death. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And as long as the threat of death looms over Adam and his offspring, the promise of eternal life remains just that, a promise only. Eternal life. Unchanging, perfect communion with God was not part of Adam's created state. Adam was surely created innocent. He was created sinless. But Adam was still able to sin. His state was mutable. It was able to change. He could fall from grace. And so this means that Eden, as Adam was placed in it, Eden wasn't it. Eden pointed to something greater, anticipated something greater. There was still yet a higher state to which Adam could attain, a state in which the very possibility of sin would be gone once and for all, where Adam would be once and for all confirmed in eternal life. And so the tree of life stood before Adam as a symbol of God's covenant promise of eternal life, but it's held out to him under the threat of death for disobedience. And so Adam could merit eternal life for himself and his offspring by fulfilling his covenant obligations, by doing all that God's commanded him to do as his prophet, priest, and king set in this garden sanctuary. But if he fails, death and sin spread to all men. Or to use Paul's words from Romans chapter 5, Through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Adam was a type of the one to come. This is at the heart of the covenant of works. Do this and live. If Adam perfectly obeys, blessing is assured. But if he disobeys... Death and estrangement from God will follow. As the king goes, so goes the kingdom. Well, thinking about Adam's covenantal condition then, we've considered how God placed, appointed, obligated, promised, and threatened Adam. But finally, in Genesis 3, we're going to see that God tested him. The covenant of works didn't make an endless demand for obedience in the garden. It had a goal. It had an end. It had an eschatology. The man and the woman were commissioned by God to fill the earth and to subdue it for God's glory. But whether this happened or not would depend upon Adam's obedience in the garden, specifically to God's prohibition in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Do not eat from that tree. Will mankind's representative obey God or not? Will the one merit eternal life for the many? Or will he fail and bring ruin on all those whom he represents? The answers to these questions bring us to our final point in Genesis 3. We've beheld Adam's created condition. We've just considered his covenantal condition. Now we have to give our attention to Adam's cursed condition. And two things are going to stand out in Genesis 3. A failed test and a fallen world. A failed test and a fallen world. Consider the first of those two, a failed test. Beginning in Genesis 3, verse 1, following Adam and Eve's marriage in Genesis 2, 21 to 25, the narrative immediately shifts to the serpent's deception of Eve. The serpent was part of the created world. The created world was what Adam and Eve were tasked with ruling. So this fact teases out an important truth. The temptation of Eve and of Adam, by implication, threatened all three of Adam's offices, king, priest, and prophet. 
He was created to be God's mediator in a threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. And Satan's temptation is going to take direct aim at his failing to fulfill his obligations in that threefold office. As kings, Adam and his wife should have quickly subdued the serpent. They should have prevented the serpent from ever slithering into Eden in the first place. One theologian observed, The presence of the foe in the garden presents Adam with an opportunity to wage war. And he didn't do it. But his priests... Adam and his wife should have guarded God's sanctuary from anything unclean entering into it. God commanded Israel's priests in Numbers 3 that if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. It is the priest's obligation for the sake of maintaining the purity and the holiness of God's sanctuary to put to death anyone that would aim to make that place unclean. When the unclean serpent came near, Adam, as God's priest, should have crushed the serpent's head. And he didn't do it. As prophets, Adam and his wife should have meditated on God's law. They should have rebuked the serpent. But they didn't guard the purity of God's word. And they didn't speak it exactly as God spoke it. Notice in verse 1 how the serpent cast doubt, first of all, on God's reliability. Did God really say? And then deliberately he twists God's words. Misquoting God on purpose. Well, in response to verse 2, the woman then fails to repeat God's law correctly. And then in verse 3, she softens God's threat. Notice that in verse 2, she adds conditions. God never said that they couldn't touch the tree, but then she adds to his word. That's a bad prophet. Not only that, but at the end of verse 3, she says that if we do touch it, adding to God's word, we're going to die. She softens the consequences. God says in chapter 2, verse 16, you will surely die. In the Hebrew, it's dying, you will die. You will die, die, is what God says. If you eat that, you're going to die, die, like super death. You're going to die not only physically, but spiritually. It's going to lead not only to your own deterioration in this mortal body, to dust, you will, to dust you will return, but you will be cut off from your very source of life himself, God, very God. You will die, die. But Eve says, yeah, we'll probably die. She softens the consequences, softens the threat. Meanwhile, I want you to notice who's not speaking in Genesis 3. Adam, who was apparently present with his wife because she turned right around and gave him the fruit, was silent, conspicuously silent, deafeningly silent. God gave Adam the command. Adam was to teach his wife the command. And together they were to teach their children God's commands. The woman's failure to speak God's word implies Adam's failure as a priest in his home. A failure that is amplified by his silence. They failed the test. And in failing the test, they failed to live up to their identity as God's image bearers. Mediators in a threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. God had designed them to rule and to worship and to embody his holy law. But they failed to keep the covenant of works in all respects. In every possible respect. They failed. And what were the results? They were catastrophic. We've just seen a failed test, but now finally I want you to consider a fallen world. Immediately after eating what God told them not to eat, there in verse 7, Adam and his wife, quote, realized that they were naked. The word translated naked there is related to the Hebrew word that's translated crafty in verse 1. It's a play on words. This is Hebrew narrative, but oftentimes Hebrew narrative loves to play on words. And the point is not merely that they didn't have any clothes on, but that God's image bearers are beginning to resemble the serpent. 
Just as the serpent was crafty, Adam and Eve realized that they were naked. Same Hebrew word. They, were started, they looked just like the serpent. And rather than reflecting God's love and truth and justice in their mediating work, no, in verses 11 to 13, notice how they shifted the blame. They were unwilling to answer the Lord. Like the serpent, their aim now is to deceive. And then beginning in verse 16, God outlines the curses that he will execute against them according to his covenant threats. I said, do this and live. You didn't do it, now you die. Notice in verse 16 that when God curses the woman, the commission of Genesis 1.28 hangs in the background. The man and the woman can still be fruitful and multiply, but not without the high cost of great pain. The fall is also there at the end of verse 16, going to introduce discord in the marriage. That instead of ruling the creation with her husband, you see that word there, your desire shall be contrary to your husband? That Hebrew word, your desire, is actually the same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis 4 that, uh, when God speaks to Cain. That sin is crouching at its door to rule over you. The point being here, That the man and the woman can still be fruitful and multiply, but not without great cost. The fall is going to introduce discord into the marriage, but instead of ruling the creation with her husband as his helper, she's going to attempt to rule over him and take control for himself or herself. And his rule as a response will be one rooted in contention and discord. Not the kind of leadership that David talked about at the end of his life. The kind that causes fruitfulness and flourishing. All of a sudden, discord is invited into their marriage. And it's a result of the curse. In verses 17 to 19, we see something else. God gives even greater attention. Notice this to Adam. He only gives one verse to Eve, but gives three to Adam. In Genesis 2.15, recall God commanded Adam to work and to care for the garden. According to God's curse, though, Adam still has to work, only he's going to have to work east of Eden in a ground that is now going to work against him rather than with him. But then the curse climaxes in Adam's death at the end of verse 19, exactly as God threatened, that the ultimate price of attempting to be like God by rejecting God is alienation from God both physical and spiritual death. And that's what we see in the chapters that follow. In chapter 4, immediately we see death through murder. In chapter 5, we see one phrase repeated over and over and over again for all of those who were created in Adam's image. And he died, 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 and and it keeps on going. Through one man, death and sin spread to all men. God made good on his promised curses if Adam disobeyed. Adam represented all of humanity. Therefore, death and sin spread to all men because all have died in Adam. That's a bleak, bleak picture. It is the consequence of Adam's covenantal disobedience. But God doesn't leave them without hope. He gives them, in the most unlikely places, a promise of grace. That embedded within the serpent's curse is a profound promise. Notice in Genesis 3.15 it says... I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He's going to suffer, but you're going to die, is what he says to the serpent. Here we have a war of the seeds. It's a theme that's going to permeate the rest of the Bible's story. Of the seed of the serpent against the godly seed of the Messiah. But at the heart of this promise 
is the fact that redemption is guaranteed. That a godly king who perfectly images God, unlike Adam, a better Adam, is going to vanquish the serpent. He is going to be faithful to God's word. He is going to wage war against sin and Satan. And like a good priest, he is going to crush the serpent's head. The king will accomplish what Adam and his wife failed to accomplish. They failed to rule over the serpent and rid Eden of it, so now their faithful seed is going to arise and crush his head once and for all. And then I want you to notice in verse 20 that just as Adam named the animals in chapter 2, what does he do right after receiving this promise of redemption? He names his wife Eve. Why? Because she would become the mother of all the living. Where does he get off naming his wife the mother of all the living after God already executed the threat of death if it wasn't that Adam believed God's promise? Despite the fall, Adam trusted in God's gospel promise. He recognizes that Eve is going to play some kind of pivotal role in God's plan of redemption. And that may be foggy to him. He can't see how it's going to work out. But he's got God's word. And he knows now from bad experience, God's word is true. And he believes it. And then notice in the very next verse, verse 21, God begins to make good on that promise. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. There are many who believe that what God is doing is making atonement for their sins through the death of an animal. Maybe that's the case. But it might also be, as we see elsewhere in the Old Testament, that clothing, that, that getting new clothes is the mark of receiving one's inheritance. That upon faith, God has clothed them in a way that their fig leaves never could, in a way that would be appropriate to their calling in life, even now as fallen men and women, that God has perhaps atoned for their sin. If not here, ultimately he did in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he most certainly gave them a new destiny according to his covenant of grace. That by his great grace, God has began the restoration process of restoring Adam's image so that he could, to the best of his ability, in a fallen world, by God's grace, rule and worship and obey. Only God possesses the power to redeem sinners. Beloved, Genesis 3.15 is foundational to the gospel. It is the first promise of God's covenant of grace. It's called a covenant of grace instead of a covenant of works because God himself will ensure the success of a future king and the preservation of his godly community. The covenant of works entailed God's commitment to give Adam and his offspring as a reward eternal life for Adam's obedience or as a penalty, eternal death for Adam's disobedience. Adam's works, according to God's law, determine mankind's destiny. But the covenant of grace refers to a covenant between God and his elect, whereby he promises and applies salvation through faith in Christ, the last Adam, who alone merited our salvation by his own obedience, both actively and passively, both as an obedience to God's law and in his submission to God to the point of death on a cross, merited our salvation by his obedience in the covenant of redemption. Is that ringing a bell from last week? What we see in Genesis 3.15 is the first historic revelation of the historic outworking of God's covenant of redemption in Christ. And it's going to be revealed across the Old Testament in farther steps, like a flower unfolding on a trajectory. All of these promises and covenants ultimately finding their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, the entire Bible, the whole Bible, is about two Adams. And as such... It is about the historical outworking 
of two covenants. Two covenants working their way in history through earthly covenants, which is what we're going to do in the coming weeks. That is the covenant of works in Adam, death and sin spread to all men, and the covenant of grace in Christ that he has become justification and life for all who believe. And I want to submit to you from our initial scripture reading that this is the way the apostles understood the scriptures as well. Listen to Paul again, Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, one man to all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. All those who are in Adam, death and sin. All men who are in Christ, justification and life. Paul finishes, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Two Adams, two covenants. Two destinies. That is the Bible's covenant theology. Why does it matter? Let me give you three things. For one, Adam's failure in the covenant of works directly impacts our present condition. Adam's fall brought death to all men, and it resulted in the creation being cursed. And because Adam sinned, his guilt was imputed to us, and we have inherited his corrupted nature, such that apart from Christ, all men are, quote, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, and are, quote, by nature, children of wrath in Adam. Beloved, people are sinners not because somewhere along the line they managed to sin like Adam sinned. People sin like Adam because they inherited Adam's sin nature. That apart from Christ, you and I are powerless to do otherwise. That ever since the covenant of works was broken, you and I cannot keep God's law. We don't have it in us. We can't merit eternal life for ourselves. It's been abrogated in Adam. We have no hope of eternal life on the basis of our own works righteousness. No, instead, what the law does is show us that in Adam's fall, we all died. That we are sinners deserving of God's curse, namely death. But secondly, the second thing that the covenant of work shows us is that it reveals the standard of God's justice. The price of everlasting life is no less than perfect, perpetual, permanent obedience to God's law. How you doing? In other words, the covenant of works reveals that heaven must be earned. God's justice means that he cannot merely give away eternal life to sinners. Which leads us to a third and final implication. If eternal life must be earned, who can earn it? Thirdly and finally, the covenant of works made with Adam sheds light on the work of the last Adam. If you deny or you redefine the covenant of works made with Adam, you do the same to the work of Christ. That's how tied together the two are, according to the apostles. Christ comes as the last Adam. He comes as our representative. He is our one mediator, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And all that he earns by his one act of obedience comes to us as a gift. Where Adam failed to earn life for his descendants, Christ succeeds by fulfilling all righteousness and so meriting heaven for himself and his people. In other words, eternal life has to be earned before it can be given as a gift. But Christ has merited justification in life and then he gives it as a free gift to sinners. Through the covenant of grace. So the covenant of works then forms the necessary background. It is the typological, the type to understanding. It is the foundation for understanding. It's the, it's the, it's the little Ford Mustang 
that points to the ultimate Ford Mustang of how it is that sinners can be justified in front of an all-holy God. Adam's sin, his sin was imputed to us, but Christ is the last Adam. Didn't just take our sin upon himself, but he earned salvation through all of his act of righteousness, the very righteousness that he now imputes to us by faith, because that's justification. It is not merely enough for you to be forgiven of your sins. You also have to be counted as if you have always perfectly, perpetually, and permanently obeyed God's law. And the only way you can do that is if somebody gives you earned righteousness that doesn't belong to you. And that is what Christ does as the second, last, and better Adam for all of his people. Beloved, this is love. And when we were enemies deserving the eternal pains of hell, Christ died for us so that we might become co-heirs of heaven with him, entering into God's rest with him. Oh, beloved in Christ, God's justice and mercy kiss. God the Father saves us, not by ultimately denying his own holy justice, but by satisfying all of his claims and sending his son to die. Or as one author put it, the covenant of works forms the sturdy pillars of the gospel bridge so that when the eyes of our hearts behold them, God increases our assurance. Let's pray.